Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of the M&M podcast. I, as always, am Michael Gallagher from the Center for Research and Digital Education, and I'm joined by Miles Blaney. Hi, everybody. I'm Miles Blaney. I'm uh, in digital learning applications and media and learning, teaching, web and information services in the University of Edinburgh. There it is. And uh, we're joined today. We're very happily to be joined today by Lorna Campbell. Lorna, could you possibly introduce yourself? Of course. Hi, folks. My name is Lorna Campbell, and I'm a learning technology service manager in learning, teaching and web services, where I mostly work as the manager of the Open Education Resources Service. Excellent. Excellent. Hi, so how... how- Hi, Lorna. <laughs> How's everybody doing? I guess so this is the the point where we're just chit chat about how life under lockdown. Well, it's not lockdown anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, te- technically, it is. I think we are still in. I don't know. Are we in uh, yeah, zone phase one or something? Like that? I'm kind of losing track, to be honest. No. I think yeah. we're in zone two. Are we? I'm not sure. Nothing's changed. Nothing's really changing for me anyway. No. I'm just I'm just staying put for the time being. <laughs> I'm gonna ride yeah. this out. <laughs> have, have we have we all had our vaccines or anybody or? Yes, I'm wow. fully vaccinated. Oh wow, very good. Oh, wow, I've that, only just, had the one. that just shows how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've got one. I'm, yeah, I've I'm, got I've had both. I've had both. Wow. Oh, so uh, I'm greatly appreciative of it too. I have to say so. Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I, I had a I had a wee bit of trepidation because you speak to different people and they'll tell you different stories about how they felt after it. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I was like, what's going to happen? But I actually felt grand. Good. I did, good. I, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I felt I was, I had a pretty strong reaction to it. So uh, mm-hmm. the AstraZeneca, I don't know, Lorna, what you had. But. I had I had the AstraZeneca as well, but um, my, my partner, yeah, my partner's a nurse and he got vaccinated very early on with the um, Pfizer, I think. Yeah. Um, so I was, yeah. <laughs> but so I, I had a reaction to the first jag not the second and it was the other way around with him so yeah, yeah, hey. I think it's really funny now because people I've said I, I didn't have much of a reaction and they're like oh second jab and I'm like what <laughs> so I think it's, I've got the fear now I'm like what I, people say for the first jab supposedly no don't get the first one second one's going to be a killer no. I was like what so, um, <laughs> and I know quite a few people have had no reaction at all so no exactly <laughs> but hey it's 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 a lot better than the alternative. That's great. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's correct. That's correct. Yeah, it's like the it's a miracle of modern science, and I'm happy to be a part of it. Yes. Whatever, whatever the side effects are, right? Yes, it gets us back to normal in some respect. Oh, absolutely. Normality, normality would be lovely right now. So I guess just going back a little bit to the last episode, just to recap a little bit. So we had, Miles and I had talked about a little bit how we're reorganizing this. We had taken like a six-month hiatus away from it. Not necessarily by choice. We just lost track of the time and uh, sort of returning to it as more of a thematic kind of uh, discussion around not just, not really just technology, but how it sort of intersects with all we do, you know, in, in higher education at these universities and, and cutting across <coughs> specific themes. And we're really lucky that Lorna can speak to almost all of them uh, knowledgeably, <laughs> which is, which is great. Knowledgeably. <laughs> <laughs> which is great. This is almost like the ideal guest for this thematic structure, but I guess we'll just jump right in with some of the questions and then hand it over to you. Mark. Yeah, yeah. So, so today um, we're kind of going to, focused on um, equity and inclusion and so um, covering knowledge equity, representation, whose ability to contribute to open spaces and technologies, whose voices are excluded and, and, and what we can do about it. Um, so the first question is uh, what do you mean by knowledge equity and inclusion? So I think 
Words like equality and diversity and inclusion, they can become a bit meaningless. I think they're, sh- they're quite often used as sort of checkbox, ex- checkbox exercises. But I think what's really important about knowledge equity is it's this idea about enabling equitable access to the creation of knowledge Mm-hmm. and to ensuring that people who have been excluded from traditional structures of power and knowledge have, are included and have got the opportunity to construct their own knowledge in ways that is meaningful to them. So it's not about um, just making sure that you have uh, token representatives of every marginalised group in the room. It's about ensuring that um, all these groups have got a say in how knowledge is created um, in terms that is meaningful to them. So that's really what's at the heart of knowledge equity and inclusion. It's about being able to participate in the creation of knowledge and dismantling the barriers that prevent marginalised groups from doing this. Okay. And 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 can we can we go back and, and maybe reflect on um, historically who has had access to that knowledge and and why? Well, I think I mean we don't. It's not a difficult question to answer. I mean, so many of our um, our institutions in the West are founded on uh, patriarchy, um, mm-hmm. and traditionally it has been uh, white Western men who have governed the creation of our knowledge institutions, our universities, our museum collections, our cultural heritage resources. And that's very much a function of um, the history of our society in the West. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are other structures of power and oppression in other societies all over the world. That's not to say that, you know, the West is unique in discriminating against uh, different groups, but Um, I think it is clear that there is a hegemony of knowledge um, and power concentrated in the West. And I think those power structures are still very much reflected in our knowledge structures and our cultural heritage um, organisations and also in um, the the way that we record our history as well. And clearly there's a lot of debate ongoing at the moment about how our history is recorded and communicated and structured. Um, and that's a whole other can of worms, probably. Mm. And I think, you know, it, it's interesting you're listening to, he's talking about how our history is recorded and, and how mm-hmm. it's communicated to everybody as well. And, and you know, I can, it, it's funny thinking about my own upbringing in Northern Ireland. You know, I was never taught Irish history. I was yes. never taught about Northern Irish history. Yep. I was always taught about um, English history, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is something I find at the time I didn't really think about. But when I went to university, I actually did I did a politics degree. My dissertations on, on Northern Irish history, and it's the first time I actually delved into my own political history to understand mm-hmm. society, where how the formation of the country was, and, and why the reasons behind it as well. So it is. Mm-hmm. It, it was just fascinating to see that. Historically, yeah, you'd just be excluded from that because it's the way it was. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's very prevalent in Scotland as well. And I mean, I'm I'm from the, the Outer Hebrides, so I'm from mm. the Gaeltoch. So, mm. um, you know, the, the the again, you know, we were not taught the, the history of our own communities, of our own islands, you know, in school. And I think 
I don't know if that's still the case, but I think you, you do still see that. And obviously I live in, I live in Glasgow now, mm. I've lived here for the last 20 or 30 years. And again, I think the, the social and political history of our own cities is not taught. No. And I think it's very easy for, uh, particularly I think in Scotland to, um, just uh, draw a veil over the less palatable aspects of our history, particularly in terms of um, profits um, from slave ownership um, yeah. that you know are embedded in our cities, in our architecture, in our street names, mm-hmm. um, many of which are named after merchants, which you know profited from um, enslaved peoples. Um, and it's quite interesting when you do look at um, the Highlands. You know, I have heard people claim that you know it was only the wealthy and the rich that profited from slave ownership in a country like Scotland. But mm. that's not the case because so many of these um, merchants and slave owners did use the, their profits to fund schools in the Highlands, for example, uh, to educate the poor populace, and it was one way to to wash their their profits clean. And I think you know we we can't get away from the fact that um, our, our our country is you know embroiled in colonialism, and I think we have to acknowledge that um, that heritage and come to terms with it. Yeah, I, I, do you know what I think? It's I think it's really it's key, and I think you're right. Sometimes it's gleamed over, and people don't want to look the messy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you, you know the dirty history of, of where what surrounds us um, mm-hmm. and why and maybe reflect on that and it's it's um, I think it's a really interesting time and um, yeah I, I, what you're talking about there about Scotland as well is is fascinating I like um, going off on a tangent like my my um, my wife watched Outlander and she's really got into it from Outlander into oh, Scottish yes. history <laughs> so um, and she's um, since watching that she's just she listens a lot more and tries to read a lot more information mm-hmm. about like the uh, jacobites and all that kind of stuff as yeah. well and it's it's really interesting how to try and find information out and understand where she's from her history or culture as well so mm-hmm. it's great mm-hmm. um so i think we kind of touched on on this point already but you know when we're talking about you know you've, you've said about the barriers and the participation and, and things like that but why should people really care about knowledge equity and access to this information do you think well i think it's really important because if if knowledge is controlled by one group of people then we do miss so much in terms of our own history and our own understanding and it's you know it's all the things we've just been talking about it's very easy just to pretend that never happened mm. and therefore we don't we won't learn anything. You know, we won't learn any lessons from the past if we pretend that it didn't happen. Um, And I think that's, you know, one of the most fundamental reasons as to why it is important that um, everyone has the ability to participate in the creation of knowledge. We're all much richer um, for um, the knowledge that diverse groups can bring to us because Mm -hmm. there are different ways of knowing there are different ways of seeing different ways of understanding um and to shut ourselves off from that i think is is really blinkered Mm -hmm. and is not going to do us you know any good in the long run we do need to come to terms with that interesting yeah yeah yeah. 
and, and see, just touching on one point there, because there are so many different perspectives as well, so many mm-hmm. angles of, of, of things. And you know, is it is it possible for us to to know every angle, or is it still valueless having access to that information? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think you know. <laughs> so often there is never just one right and one wrong answer mm. it's all about perspective mm-hmm. and I think the more perspectives we have the better we're able to get a nuanced understanding of whatever the particular topic is and I think again coming to terms with the fact that there sometimes isn't a single right answer is an important aspect of uh, digital literacy yeah that's really good Really good point. I actually wanted to pick up on a few of those because what you were saying, Lorna, was really resonating. I think, you know, we were speaking, you know, rather, uh, uh, you know, broadly in society about knowledge equity and how that exists and historically how that mm-hmm. has been repressed at times. And uh, and I think that resonates so clearly in higher education as well. I mean, mm-hmm. every step of the what we quote unquote, like this research process or the coming to know process within higher education is really predicated on a very specific Eurocentric, you know, mm-hmm. a view of what counts as knowledge, what counts as evidence, Absolutely. Like who gets to make those decisions and who gets to review and uh, participate in that. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that even from the lens of like, I did a special issue. I was the editor of a special issue just last year and just recognizing the gatekeeping that exists at each and every layer of that process was a real uh, revolution to me. Yeah. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, I mean, as I said, I I work, um, I have worked for the last, you know, 15 years or so in um, the domain of open knowledge and it's something Mm. I'm very committed to. Um, But I think it's important to acknowledge that there are gatekeepers in these open spaces as well, that just Mm. because a a space is open does not mean that everyone has access to it equally. Um, And all... um, there's so many spaces in the open landscape have their gatekeepers and sometimes that is necessary, but I think it is always important to question who has access to these open spaces and who's excluded and why. That's a good point. That's a good point. I think that's a good segue into the kind of discussion about what's happening institutionally. So we all work at the university of Edinburgh and I, Lorna, you're very, very, very much involved in, in these efforts. Can you speak a little bit too about what, you know, in terms of the open movement, what you're doing at the university, what, what that entails? Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, one of the, um, the things I've always found really admirable about the university of Edinburgh is it does have a, a genuine commitment to open knowledge. I mean, it's, 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 it's actually written into the university's vision and mission uh, to share our knowledge and make the world a better place. And one way to do that is through opening access to that knowledge. And I think we can see that right across the university. Obviously, as I said, I work in the university's Open Education Resources Service. That's just one um, expression of the university's commitment to openness. We also have our Wikimedian in residence, um, Ewan McAndrew. Uh, we have uh, a commitment to opening access to our scholarly research. We have uh, open data repositories. We're committed to supporting the use of open source software. So, so these commitments uh, exist right across the university. And I think um, that is indicative of just how important uh, open knowledge is to our university community, uh, because it, it does enable us to share our knowledge and to make a contribution to the community that we are part of. And I think that's very important. 
Does that, some... bro- does that I'm sorry to inter- interrupt, Miles, but does that broaden, do you think like earlier on, you had said something around the idea of creation, like knowledge creation as, as a huge part of knowledge equity. So this mm-hmm. op- this university commitment to opening up, you know, these knowledge kind of resources to the wider public, mm-hmm. do, do you see that helping or pushing the needle a little bit in terms of knowledge creation about who can actually create these things? Or? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Because I think we've always worked very close in the, the Open Education Resources Service and also our Wikimedia and residents as well. We've always worked very closely with our students. Mm. to encourage them to get involved with the co-creation of knowledge. And I think one of the main affordances of open education practice is that it does encourage this co-creation of learning and of knowledge. It doesn't Mm. privilege um, the position of the educator. It involves students in the creation and the negotiation of their own knowledge. And we've got lots of fabulous examples of that around the university, whether it's uh, our students taking part in Wikimedia in the curriculum assignments and Mm. writing their own Wikipedia articles or creating Wikidata projects, or whether it's uh, students creating open education resources as part of their classroom assignments. Um, We have We've had wonderful projects running for, I think, probably about five years now. Um, The School of Geosciences Outreach Course their students have created a whole wealth of open education resources um, designed for use by school teachers, oh, wow. uh, which we've been sharing online. And uh, it's it's a really inspiring project. So I think, yeah, it does actually make a real difference to uh, getting more people involved in the creation of knowledge. So knowledge is not just created by our faculty and our academic staff and our professors and our readers. It's also created by our students as well. And that's really important. So, yeah, it's really, really important. We've actually benefited from that our, ourselves in our program, the MSc in Digital Education. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah we, Ewan comes and he he actually works with one of our courses on towards mm-hmm. that, you know, towards Wikipedia and, you know, drafting open educational resources. Uh, some right, of our yeah. final assignments are the creation of an OER. And That's right. Yeah, we make, have we have many of them on our website and there's some fabulous resources <laughs> there. No, I think we probably I mean, I'm, I'm 100 percent sure we took the inspiration from you all. So, no, it's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful effort there. Um, I guess the technology sort of like the general theme of the podcast is really around, you know, tech, what role does technology have in all of this? And clearly with OER, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about a medium and we're talking about a reach and a scope mm-hmm. and, and a dissemination that m- most likely would not have been possible without it. But do you see any uh, do you see any issues around the role of technology in, in sort of establishing this knowledge equity? Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, there's there's a couple of interesting things there. I think technology certainly has played a fundamental role in enabling access to open knowledge. There's no question of that. However, I'm not sure I would say that open knowledge is dependent on technology because there are many, many communities and examples around the world where... Um, knowledge is shared and I think again we can get so locked into our western mindset which is very bound up in copyright that we do think of knowledge as something to be not shared something Mm. to be protected and Mm. only disseminated amongst the chosen few that I think you know there are the, the principles that underlie the sharing of knowledge exist in many many communities around the world which you know do not have access to digital technology so that's that's one slight tangent, but certainly in our own context, yes, technology plays a fundamental role in 
enabling the creation and dissemination of open knowledge. Uh, but again, I think it is important to realise that technology is not neutral and that the way that access to those spaces and these technologies is mediated um, is not always equitable. Mm. Um, and it can be often difficult to see where the biases lie and where the power structures lie. And I think that's true whether you're talking about um, the open source software community, which is very, very heavily dominated by um, by men. It has to be said. There, are, you know, if you look at the statistics for the number of um, women who participate in open source software projects, it's very, very low. On the other hand, within our institutions, we quite often um, we don't have a great deal of choice over what technology we we use, and that's that's because simply there's a, a finite number of tools that we can use to um, deliver education at scale, um, for example. So uh, I think we're continually trying to balance perhaps our ethics with what is pragmatically available to us to mm. work with. And that's that takes constant negotiation, I think. That's a good point. That's a really good point. And in uh, the open source community, I think is a good anecdote around mm -hmm. how how you know something seem you know built upon these ideals of openness and seemingly a liberatory type thing can reinforce sort of the patriarchal yeah. divide. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think Just you see that a lot too with the with the sorry, I, but with the ed tech kind of industry at large, it, mm -hmm. it's you know it's very much largely still, you know, a Silicon Valley esque mm -hmm. kind of, you know Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean you, you only have to look at the, you know, if you go back to like the the founders of so many of the um, the really big open source software projects and the influential mm. open source software projects, the the benevolent dictators for life. I don't. There is there's sure. actually a list on Wikipedia of benevolent dictators for life who are the founders of many of the open source software projects, oh. and it's 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 interesting to look at that list. I think there may be one, if not two, women on it. <laughs> uh, and, and and just to touch on, I think this is a really interesting point because I, I know in, in previous podcasts we've kind of talked about you know with the with ai becoming more and more prominent mm -hmm. and algorithms being written by like you'd say by um large california-based companies with mm -hmm. white male workers um mm -hmm. and that underlying bias that's created in those um mm -hmm. so there's not a the, the quality and, and i think what you said at the very beginning that some people regard this as like a checkbox exercise mm -hmm. and you can yeah. see realistically that it, it's not. <laughs> it's kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean? a, really. This really affects us all, and I think yeah. it, it has been. It's encouraging in a way that I think people are becoming more aware of how algorithms are created and mm. the biases that they encode. Not always knowingly, it has to be said. Yeah. You know, it's it's very it's very hard to get away from our own biases, and you know, I I speak from you know I'm aware that I have my own particular privileges. Um, mm. And it's it's very it's very hard for me to see my own biases. So that's not to say that the biases that are encoded in algorithms are always put there maliciously or explicitly. But we cannot get away from the fact that they are there and they do have a very very real impact on people's lives. A growing it, impact. Yeah, and yes. increasingly these are making decisions for for. Yeah, that's where it gets yeah. really scary. That's right. 
So they're making decisions for these students as they progress through education or, yes. you know, or any member of society, really. I mean, you see these algorithms doing sorting, mm-hmm. you know, for who gets bank loans and who gets, yep. you know, certain privileges within society. Yeah, d- digital, digital redlining is a thing. Yeah, that's true. Very, very true. And, and, and people, I think people won't even, like you say, realize a nudge, you know, mm-hmm. a suggestion. That's all that, you know, that's, it's, it's massive how much that, AI and, and algorithms are starting to play more and more yes. in our life. Our phones are, you know, the applications yeah. that we use to download on our phones are, are massively reliant on them. So mm-hmm. a pop-up, you know, that it's just crazy. Yeah. But you're right. I think it's it's really key that, you know, that equality has yeah. to has to happen. It, just as a, a very trivial example, um, I I have a, a Twitter account that I've oh god I've had it for forever I think um, that I use primarily to talk about open education and things that I engage with at work and other topics that interest me. Um, uh, but I also have another Twitter account that I use just to talk to like a small group of friends mm-hmm. primarily. And my other Twitter account it's quite interesting because for some reason Twitter seems to think I'm a man on that okay oh, wow. i'm not quite sure how because i don't <laughs> did i i can't i honestly can't remember did i just put no gender on it or but anyway it's quite interesting seeing them trying to guess what will attract me in terms of advertising yeah uh because twitter pushes adverts at you topics at you are you interested in this are you interested in this yeah, and it's getting yeah. really, i keep saying no no and it's getting really desperate now <laughs> <laughs> some of the suggestions are getting quite left field <laughs> Oh, you're like you almost feel bad for the algorithm. It's, it's, like, it's <laughs> really interesting, and I don't get this on my on my main Twitter account. I don't get this at all because I've been using it for years, and Twitter obviously knows exactly and who knows I am. Who you are. Yep. Yeah, but on this other one, it cannot get a handle on me, and it's oh, quite wow. interesting. It's been quite interesting to watch. That's fascinating. <laughs> that, that is really, fascinating. Yeah. And it probably, <laughs> that, that probably cascades and that plays out in each you know each and every one of these platforms, yes. and they're all yeah. make, you know they're all doing something similar, yeah. whether it be a yeah. nudge or a poke or. Exactly. A, a slight suggestion. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. In terms of the, uh, Lorna, just in terms of the university, now, if you were without drawing attention necessarily to the University of Edinburgh, because they were all gainfully employed here, <laughs> but just for example, if we had like, a, you know, a, a, an institution, a university, for, for example, you know, respected, venerated, all these different things and a certain size and a certain infrastructure, what would you recommend that they do, I guess, to start to see these, these equitable changes? Uh, take place is there any like you know practical sort of concrete suggestions you might well i think the first thing to do is recognize there's an issue and that's quite often the hardest thing Mm. is to recognize that there is a problem because when we are so entrenched in these power structures you just don't see them so so recognizing there is an issue is the first step and then taking practical steps to address that so i think in terms of practical steps um, the, oh, the, I mean, there are many, many things you can do in terms of, you know, just right off the top of my head, look at your reading lists. You know, who are you, who are you putting on your reading lists? What readings are you recommending to your students? Are you recommending um, uh, scholars of colour? Are you recommending uh, authors from different cultures? Um, that's one very simple example. Getting students involved in the co-creation of knowledge, again, I think is another really powerful way to address um, knowledge equity. And 
we've already discussed um, open education resource assignments, Wikipedia assignments. That is an absolutely brilliant way to engage students in the creation of knowledge. And by doing that, I think you immediately diversify um, how knowledge is created. And there are many ways that you can work um, open education resource creation assignments into curricula. And I think um, uh, peer evaluation is very, very powerful when it comes to um, co-creation. In fact, I think I would absolutely recommend if anyone is looking at embedding open assignments of any kind in their in the curriculum that they consider uh, peer review and peer assessment so that you're getting other students involved in that co-creation as well. Mm. Um, engaging with organisations like Wikimedia UK, I should actually confess um, an interest here. I didn't mention at the beginning when, in our introductions. <laughs> I'm a trustee of Wikimedia UK and oh, okay. I'm also a trustee of the Association for Learning Technology which is another organisation that has a very strong commitment to openness in the learning technology domain. Um, And I would highly recommend that um, people consider um, creating a, becoming a certified member of ALT, which is a professional accreditation for learning technologists. And you receive your accreditation by creating a portfolio and ALT actively encourages you to, to, um, to engage with openness in the community and you can even create your portfolio as an open resource. So there are lots of different ways that you can get your staff and your students involved in um, creating open knowledge. And that's leaving aside all the um, things like um, publishing scholarly works under open access mandates, sharing your research data, etc., which are very well established in our library communities. Excellent. That's perfect. That's fantastic. Miles, I can hand it over yeah, to you. Yeah, I, I think this is this has been a <laughs> we, we always try to keep this to half an hour, but I think <laughs> this is a fascinating conversation. And and, and you know, uh, just even just picking up you know the points just there about you know consumption, consumption and creation of content by students, mm-hmm. and the curriculum review and decolonization of knowledge are, are in themselves massive topics. To yes. Talk about. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the the final question we have is. Um, you know, has anything changed in the light of recent events, uh, brackets, pandemic? And uh, what are your hopes here in this space going forward? I think one of the things that has changed is with the way that education was disrupted so fundamentally right mm. across the world at the beginning of the pandemic and the impact that that has on uh, people's access to education and knowledge and as is so often the case it's people who are already marginalized who have been already who have been affected the worst by this mm-hmm. uh, it's just highlighted just how important it is that we do share the education resources and the knowledge that we are privileged to have access to and I think it's significant that uh, UNESCO did launch um, an open education pledge um at the start of the pandemic to highlight the role that open education resources can play in helping to redress the balance and to help those who have lost access to education. So one thing that I def- I really do hope for is that there will be greater appreciation of just how important it is that those of us who are privileged to be in positions of power or to have access to to knowledge and resources that we share those but also I think that we learn from other people as well 
and that it's not all one way and that we do have the humility to learn um, from other cultures, other communities, other people, um, so that we're not always in the position that we are the ones creating the knowledge, that we are learning from other people at the same time. It's a really important point, Lorna. I think that's that's great. I mean, I, we just had a pro- I have a project right now. I'm working with a few different universities. It's about refugee education, mm-hmm. like yes. access to education in Uganda, and the country just shut down for forty some days because of the COVID, uh, the you know the mm-hmm. Delta variant, and now that's basically done. So yeah. it, it, the access issue becomes so critical in these spaces. And you're right that that one way bit of mm-hmm. of transmission has got to go. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> It's so frustrating. You can easily learn. I mean, I think I learned so much from some of my, uh, you know, uh, t- Tanzanian colleagues or mm-hmm. Ugandan colleagues about how they can configure tech in in, yes. in relatively oh, yes. sophisticated yep. ways, right? And we we're, we're yeah. not necessarily learning from this. I don't Absolutely. think in the ways I, I, we should. I could not agree more. I think there is so much we can learn from how other. Um, countries all over the world have adapted to technology and have adapted technologies to their needs Absolutely. and who have just you know leapfrogged over um, the way that you know I think technology is embedded in their own institutions for example so yeah we've got a lot to learn. I agree I completely agree especially reflecting on this conversation with Miles we were having this last year at this time and noting how a lot of colleagues and uh, we, we sort of see the access and the connectivity issue as being an over there problem yeah if you know what I mean and it's like it, it most clearly wasn't there were people students staff within Edinburgh within any of the major cities in the UK mm-hmm. who were quite struggling to yeah. to do anything online in a meaningful way yes. so yeah learning from from our from our colleagues I think is a a prerequisite. Yeah, so. it, it, it's it's massive. It's it's it, it, the technological, the physical, the it's it, it's it's a massive hurdle to get over. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, no, that's no. I just want to say that I think that's been fantastic, Lorna. Really interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Lorna. You're very welcome. Um, yeah, yeah I, I'll just plug now that you've uh, talked about uh, the Wikimedia in residence and, and Wikipedia, and mm-hmm. um, the next guest will be. Ewan, who is the Wikimedia in residence. That will be a great conversation. I yes. can guarantee you that. <laughs> good good luck keeping it to half an hour, though. <laughs> You'll be told before. That's, right. That's a good point. You know, we will actually uh, put that uh, on the bottom of uh, the text of, of this podcast. We'll, we'll draw attention to... Uh, Lorna, the, the OER work you're doing at the University yep. of Edinburgh, yeah. and then we'll draw attention to ALT as well, and the Wikimedia in, in residence for sure. Excellent. Yeah. All right, that seems like a good place to stop. What do you think, Miles? Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, okay, that's and I cool. guess so. Until next time, again, this is uh, Michael. Uh, I'm Miles. And, and Lorna. Thanks uh, for having me. Thank you thank so much, you, Lorna. Lorna.